0: The podcast you're about to hear contains explicit language and sexual content. And while we're totally fine with that, if you're in charge of any youths, you may want to make sure you have the sex ed talk with them before they listen. All right, we're on to the show.
1: Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to the Safe Sex T-Rex podcast. I'm Nathan Trexler.
0: And I'm Brittany Trexler.
1: And we have a really fun topic for today.
0: Yeah, we're finally back. We um, took some time off because we wanted to make space um, and support. Um, Of course, you know, black and and queer um, podcasts. Obviously, Pride Month um, just happened, but... In the much larger context, all of the um, protests have been continuing, and we wanted to certainly be able to uplift um, voices for those in the minority communities.
1: So we hope everybody uh, had a good Pride Month. Um, in the midst of all of the craziness that's been going on, um, we've been very active on our social media about uh, trying to be supportive.
0: Yeah, and um, by some. I don't, miracle <laughs> we've made it to July by the time that this comes out and I'm not entirely sure how America did that but yay we're here I guess so um we are gonna kick off July with a topic that is near and dear to both of our hearts
1: yay
0: any guesses Nathan
1: well I don't know about hearts but yeah
0: <laughs> what do you think we're gonna be talking about today
1: well, I know. Why don't you tell our listeners?
0: Well, today we are going to be talking about monogamy, and more specifically, not monogamy. <laughs> so, yeah, um, we're going to talk all about the history of how did we get in Western society to where we are today of kind of viewing couple privilege and like you know monogamy as the norm and like having all of these um this media that like represents jealousy and like all sorts of stuff like that
1: yeah lots of toxic behavior i can't wait to hear about how that happened
0: um and really what's interesting is the story of monogamy is well the story of starting with not monogamy moving into monogamy and now kind of this push back out into polyamory and consensual non-monogamy, ethical non-monogamy, um, all sorts of different umbrella terms that people use. And we'll be talking about, you know, what it, what does it look like today?
1: I know what most of those things mean.
0: So before we can really talk about like modern day culture of polyamory, we're first going to have to go way, way back um, and talk about the evolution of monogamous relationships because there was a time where monogamy was not the standard. Really? Dun, dun, dun. Oh my goodness. I know, it's crazy. Um, okay, so anthropological evidence actually shows us that our ancestors were polygenic. Any guesses, Nathan?
1: Poly means many. Keep that one in your back pocket, folks. So proud of you. Uh, and what was the other one?
0: So it's, it's polygenic is the term.
1: I have no idea what the second half of that word means.
0: Why don't you take a guess?
1: Genic? Genic? Is it alcohol? No. (laughs) Is it genetics?
0: I wish polygenic meant lots of alcohol because we have that downstairs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No. So it means one male and many, many women. Okay. So now you and I know this. This may be a shock to some, but humans are descendants of primates. (laughs) Yep. Hope I didn't rock anybody's world. Um, and so this- My boat's
1: just (laughs) shaken.
0: This form of mating actually makes sense based on what we know of primate groups because primates are generally structured in dominance-driven hierarchies. Yep. So like only the highest ranking males have mating privileges.
1: Ugh, those poor little guys.
0: So yeah, basically we kind of followed the same trajectory for many years And it's actually probably would have been a really difficult transition for early humans to develop into what we call pair bonding. Mm -hmm. Um, So like males essentially during this time would have been locked in like this social dilemma Mm -hmm. where you're shifting effort from competition to caring for a mate. Okay. And this actually would have given a great advantage to like free riders and male cheaters and all sorts of stuff.
1: What? What? Are you going to tell me what all those things are?
0: Well, you know what a male cheater is. The media tells you all over what a male cheater is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a primal- primatologist named um, Bernard Chappuis, and he's argued that pair bonding is like a deep structural element of hominid kinship systems. Um, and he says that although humans are like not the only primates who form long-term bonds, we're distinctive in the amount of variation exhibited within our species. Okay. So, like, human pair bonding is, like, a biological phenomenon with remarkable flexibility.
1: Okay. Remarkable so, flexibility?
0: Yeah. I mean, that basically just means, like, humans can have all sorts of different types of bonds that you see. I mean, from anything, like, people who do serial cereal monogamy to, you know, the different um, uh, sorts of, like, pairs that exist. Like,
1: You mean there's it, people that only eat one kind of cereal?
0: Um... Not what I meant, but I'm sure there are, and I never <laughs> want to meet those people. Although I am going to say if it's Cinnamon Toast Crunch, I'm behind them. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so here's the thing. We don't really know fully why this transition occurred from you know this polygenic system to pair bonding or monogamy. Um, we don't really know exactly how monogamy took over. There are a couple of hypotheses um, proposed by scientists of like human development. Yeah. um and they basically say like the main drivers of monogamy are like offspring and resource access. So like over time, people who were mated found that like focusing together as a family, they were able to thrive better. okay. Um, and like, also, the idea that there were like these extreme stresses in early human life, um, and that forced individuals into bands and tribes, which eventually turned into towns and cities and later kingdoms and empires. Yep. So you have this idea of, okay, now we're accumulating things. Woohoo. Um, if I want to pass things along after I die, knowing that I will eventually die, well, then I have to know who my offspring are. Hmm. And the only way to guarantee who my offspring are are to, well, if I'm a man, right, force a woman to be with me <laughs> and only mm. me, because we women, you know, or people with vaginas and you know that particular vulval or reproductive system, mm-hmm. right? They know who their offspring are <laughs> by nature of the fact that those people come out of them, right. Men
1: You mean they're not confused?
0: Not who are you? Not what are you? They got particularly knocked over the head. Um
1: where did you come from?
0: But people with penises traditionally, um, unless the kid looks a lot like them, no clue. Not a guarantee of who is your offspring. Right. However, if you have only one partner and you are like put systems in place to make sure that that partner is only with you well then now you know who your offspring are. Make sense?
1: I don't know I'd still be confused but okay.
0: <laughs> okay well we have a cat and that's about it <laughs> and exactly. I hope you know who that she's yours.
1: <laughs> yeah but she didn't come out of you or me so.
0: <laughs> yes because otherwise that would be very concerning. Yes. Or a medical marvel either way More probably concerning. both I mean probably both <laughs> okay so that's one of the like big you know societal movements that we saw where we're like okay this is probably where monogamy starts to take over because people start wanting to pass things along. And there's also this idea that like, if I have a family and that family is mine, I can accumulate more of myself and like greed just takes over.
1: Oh yeah. Welcome to America.
0: So, okay. Even if though two people were like, hey, let's pair bond, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be sexual monogamy. Mm -hmm. Especially on guess whose part? The guy. Oh, yeah. Right? Because, again, there's this idea of, okay, if we're together, I at least need to know that the the people coming out of you are mine, so you can't do anything. I, however, can go have fun all over the place.
1: Boink, 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 boink.
0: Boink. Okay, so scientists generally divide monogamy into four different sections. There's marital monogamy. What do you think that is?
1: Marital. If you like it, then should put a ring on it.
0: Nailed it. So this is um this is what you and I currently have, right? We are two people in a marriage. Um, this is also called non polygamy. Okay. Right. So there's only two of us in this marriage. Fair enough. Um, you have social monogamy, which is two partners living together, building a life together. Right. Ooh, that was us before. Well. I mean we have roommates because we're broke but yeah well generally speaking right there's two of us we're living together we're building a life together um you have genetic monogamy what you think that is
1: um no clue take a guess (sighs) I don't know
0: okay so this is the idea that like you have two partners and they are reproducing children together okay and they're nurturing those children together
1: See, we haven't done that, so I was confused. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um yeah, so right, so there's a difference here of marital marital, right? Two people in the marriage. That's one thing. Then social, two people living together, building a life together. Uh-huh. Then genetic, two people reproducing children together. Yep. And then of course the fourth one, sexual monogamy. Okay. Not so much up our alley.
1: <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs>
0: But this is the idea, right, that you have exclusive sex between two partners. It is the major, major Western narrative of what life is supposed to be like and why you should be jealous and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. We'll talk about how well that one actually works out as we go. Um, But really, for most of human existence, the first three monogamous relationships have been practiced and cultivated by different societies all over the world. Yep. Makes sense. The fourth stage... That's actually a pretty new development in human evolution. Is it? Yeah, so to call it a part of human, human evolution is actually kind of considered a stretch. Yeah. Because sexual monogamy is mostly only practiced in Western civilization. Oh, of course it is. Um, Eastern cultures are actually still really fluid in their sexual experiences, and polygamy is like a staple in a lot of Eastern religions.
1: Dang. Maybe I wouldn't be an atheist if I lived there.
0: Well, they do give you a lot more fun, but we are going to get back to that one. Yeah, okay. All right, so let's talk about non-monogamy in the ancient world. Okay, so there's um, an Ecotopian encyclopedia by Ernest Collenbach, and he contends that in the long sweep of human history, the nuclear family will probably be seen as a really brief aberration, Mm -hmm. and that it's brought about By the special needs of industrial capitalism, hey, and the isolated suburban living made possible by cars, but it's insufficient for nurturing and supporting human beings. Yep. He says that in communes and extended families, we'll probably approximate the ancient groupings our species had relied on for survival. Small bands whose variety of strengths and talents give great resilience against outside threats. Hmm. He also says that um, interior psychological life is rich and complicated enough to challenge its members' developmental potentials. So basically what he's saying is we're in this really unique time where we've been able to make the nuclear family work, but in the long run, it's probably going to go back to the communal style of living because it's just not sustainable. Hmm. All right, so we talked about polygyny polygyny that's the better way to say it which what was that nathan
1: uh one guy and lots of ladies
0: yay so that's the most common form of polygamy and it's widely practiced in a bunch of african cultures and countries but there's also fraternal polyand fraternal polyandry and that's the idea that you have one woman married to brothers what yep One woman married to brothers. That's traditionally practiced among nomadic Tibetans, including in Nepal and parts of China.
1: Huh.
0: Um, In ancient Mesopotamia. Yep. There was originally a matriarchal society guided by a female goddess Ishtar. Okay. And she was the ruler of everything, including war and weapons. And after victories, women um, would go to her temples and they would celebrate with feastings and sex
1: that sounds fun
0: now you may remember this particular story back from our sex work episode Mm -hmm. but male gods arose and power shifted towards men so the temple for ishtar became like a house of prostitution Mm. and the prostitutes in there were actually considered holy so it was thought that all (laughs) women yes nathan they were also holy um Basically, it was thought that all women were required to go to the temple of Ishtar at least once in their lives. And they would sit in the temple until a stranger came and threw a piece of silver into her lap. Then she would leave the temple to have sex with him. And then after that, she could return home. Hmm. An interesting piece of information is typically it's thought that the women would go after they were married. Hmm. So right there you have clear non-monogamy. Right. Um. And also, more specifically non-monogamy in a religious setting yeah so that's not all the fun that they had there um also in mesopotamia there was the peor cult and it was mainly a public orgy that began with an exhibitionist show of people engaged in various sex acts and the finale even included the audience and bestiality would be part of the show oh yeah i'm not so much behind that one but i'm very much into like woohoo public orgy that sounds kind of like fun. Yeah. Um, you also have like, okay, so in Mesopotamia and Assyria, like monogamy, like so arranged marriage,
1: mm-hmm. that was
0: like considered the norm socially. Sure. But polygyny, so man taking multiple wives, that was like frequently practiced by rulers and. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, you, am- you amass more wives, you amass more land. Yeah. Well, sort but... of makes sense to me
0: and not even, even just rulers anything? though. <laughs> even like normal people would just hey, why not? It's cool, it's the cool thing to do. The rulers are doing it. Right? Um Philip II of Macedon, he had eight wives. Persian King Darius III also had several wives. And he kept a stock of, guess how many royal concubines?
1: Uh 15?
0: Oh, honey. You're going to have to take it way up. Tell me 360 royal concubines.
1: That's so much
0: work. (laughs) (laughs) One for every day of the year almost.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Um, The Code of Hammurabi. I'm sure you've heard of the Code of Hammurabi. Mm -hmm. That has rules on polygyny as well. And it noted that a man can take a second wife if she can't bear him children. However, he cannot take another wife if his first wife offers him a concubine slave instead.
1: That's interesting.
0: So, huh? But, I got nothing.
1: I can't give you kids, but fuck her.
0: Why not? <laughs> um, in ancient Mesopotamia, you also had like no stigma around homosexual love, um, and there are even texts that talk about pegging.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, or as the historians like to refer to it, Men preferring to take the female role in sex. <laughs> uh, I don't think... It's one way to put it. Not too many historians are caught up on their Pornhub lingo.
1: Yeah, no, I... That's... Never would have guessed that one.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, as you can see, there's a lot of variety in terms of non-monogamy and also just, like, a variety of sex practices that occurred in ancient cultures. Mm-hmm. Going over to Egypt pretty much any sexual practice was accepted and also condemned at one point in time or another. So there was one period where a man could, or where a woman could go into the temple of Amun and have sex with anyone she wanted until she reached the point of menstruation. And then after that there was a big celebration and marriage. Woo! What? Uh-huh. Oh yeah. Just, you know what? Get it all out as much as you can, then get married.
1: Woo. Yeah, okay.
0: Uh, I mean, it's the long-extended version of what everyone thinks you do on a bachelor party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, ancient Egyptian men were free to marry as many women as they wanted throughout much of ancient Egypt's culture. Um, and in many African countries today, um, particularly but like not limited to those of predominantly Muslim faith, there's still practice of polygyny. Hmm. Um, in... Malaysia. Um, Ruang actually currently has a polygamy club that purports to have 300 husbands and 700 wives.
1: That's so many people.
0: So many people. All right let's hop over to China. Okay. So throughout thousands of years of Chinese history it was really common for rich Chinese men to have a wife and various concubines. Again to the concubines. Okay. Um, Before the establishment of the current People's Republic of China, it was lawful to have a wife and multiple concubines within Chinese marriage. And emperors and government officials and rich merchants had up to hundreds of concubines after marrying their first wives. Okay. I do think you should be noticing a trend here by now where it's like the men go and do a lot of stuff and the women don't get to have as much fun.
1: That's so lame.
0: It's very sad. But... During the Chow Dynasty, so 770 to 222 BC, female homosexuality was actually really widespread while male homosexuality was forbidden.
1: (laughs) They would chow down.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, God. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs)
1: You didn't expect that one, did you?
0: Nobody expects the Chow Inquisition. I don't know. No. Monty Python failed me. All right, so for a brief time, it was believed that female sex workers actually acquired more yin than other women because they had sex with so many men and therefore men can gain more yin from them than other women. Hmm. So men were actually um, eventually warned against utilizing concubine services after the discovery of STDs. Yeah. But this harkens back to like, we've talked before about how um, men were often in China told not to orgasm because they were worried about losing life force.
1: Oh, yeah. I remember that one.
0: So this was kind of the answer to that.
1: Huh.
0: Um, but yeah, so you had female homosexuality. Woohoo, have at it. Go chow down, as you might say. <laughs> um, but men, eh, stick with your concubines. That's about it. Now, you can imagine female homosexuality isn't much of a threat because you can't get pregnant from it. So like... Right not too big an issue um so then 220 bc to 24 a.d you had the Qin dynasty and that's all sex is like only for procreation so they suck
1: man they <laughs> really took it on the chin
0: <laughs> um no they didn't they were not allowed to oh that would not be for procreation nathan um Aww. oh <laughs> yeah um <laughs> but that's <they> rough allowed- <laughs> buddy <laughs> They allowed men to see concubines with an entire set of Confucianist, like, rules that would govern the practice. So it was like, I guess you can see a concubine, but here's 24 rules. Right. Um, Confucianism also claimed that there was, like, an ability to manage a family that included more than one wife and a set of children. And they said that that was part of the steps for learning spiritual growth. Mm. Don't know why. I got absolutely nothing
1: spiritual growth.
0: So then the Taoist doctrines yeah. returned um, after centuries of war and unrest and during the Su dynasty in 590 to 1618 AD Chinese males once again had at it. They were like all over the place with them concubines. Mhm. Um All the way back in 675 BC, there were Ionians who settled in the North Aegean Islands and their rulers were like famously polygynists. Okay. Hopping over to Italy, in the 4th century BC, um, the Etruscans were described to have women giving themselves to men that were not their husbands. So, women, finally, you get to do a thing. Freedom! Um, And they were like noted to participate in like this big public orgy yay orgies again um and there was drink and feast um and after which they said all the men and women watched each other having sex and swapping partners and the women had no way of knowing who the fathers of their children were Hmm. because they had sex with different men so then there's also no illegitimate children in their society okay This is actually an indication that the Etruscans were using matrilineal lineage of children.
1: What does that mean?
0: Well, so in our society, you can see that we kind of do patrilineal, right? That's the idea that men need to know who their offspring are. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They take, you know, we take the name of men and like everything like that. Whereas in this society, you don't know who the fathers are. But you know who the mother is, as we talked about before. Mm -hmm. So they're going to be tracking lines based on the person you know is a parent of that child, which is matrilineally.
1: Okay, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it also sounds like a lot more fun.
1: (laughs) It sounds easier to keep track of, I guess. Honestly.
0: (laughs) Hey, don't talk to me. Talk to the rest of the society. All right, let's hop over to your favorite topic the torah oh no also known as the old testament if you're christian um okay so the torah actually includes specific regulations regarding polygamy including exodus 21:10
1: i can't f- wait till our relatives listen to this episode
0: <laughs> so that one states that multiple marriages are not to diminish the status of the first wife deuteronomy 21:15 to 17 states that a man must award the inheritance due to a firstborn son to the son who was actually born first, even if he hates that son's mother and likes another wife more. <laughs> like <laughs> doesn't matter if you hate her, bro. You have to, like, recognize the son. Yep. Um, and Deuteronomy 17:17 17, 17 states that the king shall not have too many wives. But one of the things that you're seeing here is, like, hey, you can have more than one wife.
1: Right. So what is too many?
0: Um, I'm assuming that was just judged by the penis. (laughs) Hmm. You judge that shit by your heart. (laughs) That isn't your heart, but it's much lower.
1: (laughs) Judge that with your heart. I mean, what?
0: (laughs) Um, so then there was also a source of polygamy, um, that was known as the practice of leveret marriage. Any guesses? Say that again. So in the Bible, you also had leveret marriage. Leveret? Leveret. I
1: have no idea what that means.
0: Well, basically it's the idea that a man would be required to marry and support his deceased brother's widow. Okay. So, if you had a brother and you died, it would be your brother's responsibility to marry and care for me. Mm. You do not have a brother. This is not applicable in our lives.
1: That's true. I do not have a brother.
0: (laughs) Um, but that's the idea of lever marriage, and that was actually, like, very clearly demonstrated in the Bible. So hmm. once again, that's not monogamy. Right. <laughs> right? That's, you're continuing on. And and when we say monogamy, of course, like, in that situation, you have, it doesn't matter if the man has a wife already. Like, you're still going to marry this new wife. But then also on top of that, the idea that, like, you're not only with that one person forever and ever no matter who dies, Mm -hmm. you die, they die. doesn't matter. Like, you would not, in a true, true monogamous thing, you would never get another person. But that's not what happens. Like penguins. Is that what happens with penguins, Nathan?
1: Yeah, penguins mate for life.
0: Aww.
1: And when they die, they don't mate again.
0: I didn't read about that, but that's actually kind of adorable.
1: (laughs) I saw a picture the other day of two penguins that their partners had died and they... Watch the sunset together.
0: It's so sad. No, I'm sad. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I thought you'd like that, though.
0: No, no, I'm sad. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, let's give some examples of uh, lever at marriage and also this uh, very not monogamous uh, lifestyle from the Bible. Okay. So you have um, Esau, Isaac's son. He had two wives. Jacob had two wives. Gideon had many wives and 70 sons.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Oh, that's so many sons! Um, King David also had several wives, and he was so bent on having any woman he wanted that he even had a man murdered just so he could have the man's wife.
1: Oh my goodness. Which is
0: like, dick move.
1: Dude, can you chill?
0: No. <laughs> um. Then David's son, King Solomon, he had guess how many wives like
1: a hundred i'm just shooting for the stars
0: try a seven at the beginning of that
1: 700
0: 700 wives and on top of that 300 sex slaves
1: oh my goodness how does he keep up
0: i don't know
1: was he one of those people who supposedly lived like 400 years or something
0: all I can say is like, you have to imagine that those women were like, well, it's not my night. I'm just going to go do whatever.
1: Right. When's it going to be my turn? Oh, no.
0: I would be like, you can stay away from me. It's fine. I'll just go over here.
1: You're, there's too many of us. You can't keep track. Yeah. You won't know where I go. You won't know when I'm around. It's fine.
0: Then you also had King Rehoboam and he had 18 wives and 60 concubines. That's still a lot. So, even poor men were allowed concubines, which sometimes consisted of sex and children with their wives' handmaids. However, many men would simply purchase a concubine from the girl's father. And um, Sarah gave Abraham her handmaid, Hagar, when she was unable to have children, and this was in addition to Abraham having another wife. Rachel gave um, gave Jacob her handmaid, and Hannah gave her husband her handmaid. From that sexual encounter came Samuel. I know many of these names mean nothing to you. Yep. But... Now you know where the very popular Handmaid's Tale came from. Yeah. Which is, of course, one of my favorites. Um. Okay, so now here's what you're probably gathering. There are a whole bunch of examples from the Bible about sexual non-monogamy. Yeah. And none of these male figureheads are like...
1: Judged by God.
0: Oh no, they are like super still revered. Except their sexual non-monogamy is widely dismissed. Yeah. By current Christian.
1: Well of course it is. Practition. They don't want to care they don't want to pay attention to the whole book. The quickest way never mind.
0: <laughs> That's a different podcast maybe. Yep. Alright, so according to traditional Islamic law, a man may take up to four wives, and each of those wives may have her must have her own property, assets, and dowry. Dang. And usually the wives have little to no contact with each other and lead separate, completely individual lives in their own houses, sometimes even in different cities, even though they all have the same husband.
1: Jeez, that's like entry-level jobs asking for you to have 20 years experience.
0: That's like so much traveling for him. Yeah. And also, once again, you have to imagine that some of those women are like, well, he's not going to be here for another three months. <laughs> like.
1: Yeah, I'll just do what I'm going to do. <laughs> Um, I do what I want
0: but again this is why you have so many religious texts and also just general like laws that are even outside of context of religion that are so so controlling of what women can do because how else are we gonna control them right (laughs) and also you can imagine that like you'd probably be pretty jealous in that situation of like hey you get to go around and do all of this stuff and like leave me here with the kids like right i feel like i would be like can i go have fun now because you to have all the fun
1: Mhm.
0: all right so polygamy traditionally is restricted in this culture to men who can manage things and in some countries it's even illegal for a man to marry multiple wives if he's unable to afford to take care of them each properly
1: i mean that's honestly not a bad thing
0: i mean that seems only fair yeah
1: if you can't take care of them don't marry them
0: In India, there's um, what's called the laws of Manu. And they allow for a husband to seek pleasure elsewhere with no retribution. However, should a wife violate the duty, which she owes (laughs) to her lord, (laughs) the the, the king shall cause her to be devoured by dogs in a place frequented by many.
1: Shit's fucked up, man.
0: Hey, you remembered all those laws we talked about that like try to control women? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to be devoured by dogs? Because I really don't.
1: Shit's fucked up, man. That's
0: awful. Um, and then there was even what's called the Rig Veda. And it's currently outlawed. Um, but there were like the Rig Veda. There were also epics like the Mahabharata. Um, and during the Vedic period, these would dictate that a man can have more than one wife, depending on his caste, right? Which is just your social structure. Yeah,
1: that that I'm aware of.
0: Um, and I if, remember
1: that history lesson
0: so proud of you. You know, the <laughs> one day that they taught us anything but America history. Right. Um, if one was Brahmin, which is what, Nathan?
1: The caste system. I was like, huh, that's interesting. Do you, do you remember what a
0: Brahmin was in the caste system? No. It was the highest ranking caste. Mm, okay. They could have four wives. Okay. And it goes down a wife for each subsequent caste. Ah. So the Shudra caste only gets one extra wife.
1: One extra wife?
0: You know. Just, well, you have to have a little extra.
1: That's okay. Yeah. Um, a little something.
0: So now let's slide on over to ancient Greece. So, um, slide
1: into them DMs.
0: Yeah. Boo. <laughs> um, okay. So there's a passage in the um, oration against Nera, and it says, We keep mistresses for our pleasures concubines for constant attendance and wives to bear us legitimate children and to be our faithful housekeepers so yeah now you see um obviously in Greece this big big um idea that non-monogamy is totally fine once again you got to keep in mind that legitimate children thing right when we're talking about legitimate children that's all about the wife in this case, right? And typically, bearing only the children of the husband. Right. So don't go out and do anything else. Husband, however, he can have illegitimate children if he wants. It's just that if he has them with his wife, then those are the legitimate ones.
1: Sounds like rich people.
0: Right. And of course, you wouldn't have the idea of legitimate children if you didn't have the idea of illegitimate children. Right. So like, it's just written right there. Otherwise, it would just be children. Right. But we know based on language that, like, guys were like, yeah, some of my kids are legit. Some of them aren't. It's fine. Yeah. I do whatever. Um, and wives had, like, virtually no freedom for sexual or romantic expression. Oh, Greece, You were so much fun up until now. Um, I'm sad now. I know. Men could choose from any number of acceptable partners. Wife, concubine, young boys if they wanted. And in the Roman Empire allowed men to marry women at 12, whether she had reached puberty or not, to engage in adultery, have sex with sex workers, concubines, slaves, and also to rape women. Mm. Um, Whereas wives had no sexual rights and they were obligated to submit to their husbands. We're not so,
1: praising them for that.
0: But, like, sex workers had more freedoms.
1: <laughs> right.
0: So, like, hey. Um, so, yeah. I mean... That's the thing is like you, as monogamy starts to rise, you just see this absolute decimation of women's rights.
1: Okay.
0: Yay. (laughs) No. No. (laughs) Um, North American tribal marriage practices vary from tribe to tribe, but the majority of tribes practice some form of polygyny. Okay. All sexual practices can be found throughout the tribes, including polygyny, polyandry, Wife swapping, premarital sex, extramarital sex, and also monogamy. However, it's like super rare that monogamy is the sole sexual practice found in any tribe. Mm -hmm. Shocker. Yeah. So, okay. We put a little pin in our discussion of Christianity, just so you didn't totally lose your mind. But we're going to take it back now. Because, you know, if biologically speaking, we're kind of like... More not monogamous than monogamous. And um, many, many cultures throughout the world are like, not monogamous.
1: Then why would we become so?
0: How did this happen?
1: But why though?
0: Christianity. It's the ruiner of so many things
1: in our world. Yep.
0: All right. So, but then also, how is it that like a faith that follows polygamous? Like, how are they so pro-sexual monogamy? Well, part of it has to do with the culture during Christianity's early development. Mm-hmm. So we're going once again, Greco-Roman Empire. Yep. During this time, they outlawed polygamous marriages because they hindered the growth of the kingdom. So like, in polygynous cult- um, cultures, the most elite and wealthy men hoard all the wives. Yep. And in order to inspire their warriors to go to battle for the empire the Greek and then later Roman leaders would offer wives. Mm. They were like, hey.
1: Hey, I have all these women. You can have one if you go and fight for me, and then they'd go and die, and they wouldn't get them anyways.
0: Go fight, people. This is your reward.
1: (laughs) When you come back, if you come back, wink, wink, you can have a woman.
0: Well, so by limiting wealthy men to a single wife, there are more suitable women for soldiers to marry And in fact, soldiers even had the opportunity to increase their status by marrying the daughter of like a wealthy merchant or official. Mm -hmm. So before the law, women were often married to a few of the other elite members of society. Wealth was kept at the top. And in a sense, monogamy actually helped disperse the wealth gap Hmm. because so many people were able to get married and, you know, and we talked about if you have... 70 wives, well, and, you know, however many children you manage to make out of that, you're going to have increasing amounts of wealth. Right. And increasing amounts of control of things. Whereas if you're limited to just one, more chance for, like, other people to gain a similar amount of wealth and stuff as you. Right. Um, Of course, marital monogamy does not equal sexual monogamy. Right. And... um. There's this belief that, like, socially monogamous relationships strengthened empires. And that actually is what had the lasting impact on the budding religion of Christianity. So even though stuff wasn't sexually monogamous, um, we're looking at it and going, hey, socially monogamous, maritally monogamous relationships, they do a great thing. And we're a new religion. So how do we want to do this?
1: Let's latch on to that idea.
0: Yes. So they did, and after a few centuries of law-enforced monogamy, past practices of sexual fluidity were just, like, forgotten, <laughs> right? Like, when something's a certain way for so long, and only certain numbers of people have, like, access to the education of knowing how things used to be, it just is the norm. Hmm. Like they say in Handmaid's Tale, ordinary is just what you're used to. Yep. Well, monogamy was ordinary, So before long, Christians were preaching the divine intimacy of monogamy. Because that's what God wanted. (laughs) But why though? Well, I just told you why.
1: (laughs) I know. know, Thank you.
0: (laughs) And we, um, of course, can't forget that along with this came racism and nationalism and the prejudice of comparing Western white culture to our enemies and the Eastern brown cultures. And like now you have Muslims and Hizus and Buddhists and they're being viewed as like heathens and like they're like not teaching sexual rigidity. And so like white people are like, hey, see, isn't monogamy better than those like not white people? There's a lot wrapped up into this. Layers. So, for the next thousand years, Western civilization builds itself on the lovely, lovely lie that is monogamy. Mm-hmm. A lie because, of course, people are still not sexually monogamous. Yep. Um, they may have been, at this point, socially monogamous, maritably monogamous, genetically monogamous, but they're not sexually monogamous in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, like at this time, it's Still not even true to say that most communities around the world are monogamous in any form. Right. So just as a quick fun side note, um, Miriam Zeitzin she talks about um, an anthropologist named George P. Murdoch in um, Polygamy Across Cultural Analysis. So Murdoch did a study of 1,231 societies. And he found only 186 of them were fully monogamous. Hmm. The other 1,045 operated under some form of polygyny with 588 experiencing frequent polygenic practices. Cool. So like there's an overlap in social and genetic and marital and um, sexual, you know, partners Mm -hmm. and families. And so like, again... Monogamy is just a lie that right. is super pushed in Western culture and is just absolutely not the norm when we look globally. Right. Okay. I'll come back to the soapbox later. <laughs> All right. So in addition to this is the idea that like Western Christians aren't even fully practicing monogamy as we talked about, mm-hmm. Um. but of course they found justifications for a break in this. Such as the warrior tradition of raping and pillaging. Gross. Yep. Um, and, you know, up until the 12th century, we're, like, not really considering homosexual encounters as, like, extramarital affairs.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Um, Even with, like, religious leaders beginning to harp on the evils of male-on-male love, like, even as early as the 4th century, many men had young male lovers and didn't consider those as, like, Non-monogamous encounters, even though they like definitely were.
1: Try a little priest. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um. Also, we just didn't even really talk about like lesbian love. Like we just ignored it. Right. Like, I guess like it existed for sure, but we just didn't really condemn it. Didn't really talk about it.
1: Give it a lick.
0: And like strict rules about homosexuality meant males. Right. Of course. Let's you know.
1: We're watching you, but not you. Not you.
0: (laughs) We will be on Pornhub a lot now. (laughs) Um, So also, it it was often seen as customary for wealthy men to like take a mistress. (laughs) So like as society continues to evolve and non-monogamous practices, they're like going underground. People are still clearly remaining sexually active outside their marriages and partnerships.
1: Gee, that's like rich people.
0: So um, Queen Eleanor, she began her reign in 1122 AD. And at that time, France and England enjoyed cultured courts, including a court of love, which strictly codified and promoted courtly love. So the court of love specifically claimed that love can exist only in affairs and not marriage. Hmm. And the advent of courtly love introduced the elements of emotional love between men and women for the very first time. Where love was based on mutual relationships of respect and admiration. Mm-hmm. Because you have to remember, we're viewing all of marriage as a contract, right? It's just like, what's going to get me the, the best chance on life? Right. Who can I marry to like, get what I want? Yep. So You,
1: you have money, marry me!
0: Yeah, so love, not a factor. Just absolutely, like, forget it. Throw it out, we don't care. That's not the point. But during this time, you actually start to see a version of love come into account when we're talking about sex. Of course, it said only in affairs. So like, once again, we're saying like, do the marriage thing, get it over with, close your eyes and think of England. Uh, What?
1: What is that phrase?
0: Well, that's, uh, that was a phrase that was used by one of the English queens. And I'm, someone will tell me who it was. Um when she was talking to her daughters about like the marriage night.
1: Okay. <laughs> like close your eyes. Just close and- your eyes
0: and think of England. That's how you get through it. <laughs> yeah, because again, right, like that's the advice given because it's like you're doing this for your country. Yeah. Like that's the like it doesn't matter what you want, just close your eyes and think of England to get through this because that's what you're doing it for.
1: I'm sorry, that was just a really funny phrasing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's okay. Now you've learned another thing and I will figure out Name of who that comes from. All right. So then during the 16th century, Queen Marguerite of France, she was involved in an intense but platonic love affairs with like 12 men simultaneously, which like, love it, Marguerite. You go, girl. She also wrote a st- um, stories of like platonic and perfect love intermingled with orgies and incestuousness and like partner swapping and like sexually insatiable priests. Like she had stories. <laughs> mm. Um, okay. On February 14th, 1650, the parliament at Nuremberg decreed that because so many men were killed during the Thirty Years' War, the churches for the following 10 years could not admit any man under the age of 60 into a monastery. What? Oh yeah. Priests and ministers not bound by any monastery were allowed to marry, and the decree stated that every man was allowed to marry up to 10 women because they had lost so many men geez and the men were admonished to behave honorably provide for their wife properly and prevent animosity among them
1: that's a lot yeah okay
0: yeah so i mean you have this like now we have a societal need to swing back the other way and say like we don't have enough men so we're not going to have enough offspring so like and there's too many women so we can't do the one-to-one ratio so just go get it done We'll come back to this and revisit this in 10 years.
1: Yeah, geez.
0: Um, by the way, in 17th century England, there was a legal term that referred to a person with three spouses, which implied that it was actually common enough to have a law uh, making it illegal, and that was trigamy. Trigamy? Trigamy. Huh. Oh, yeah. It's referring to a person with three spouses. And the fact that you're not allowed to do it.
1: Okay. That's a new word. I didn't know that word.
0: Well, now you know.
1: We have the best words.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's skip ahead into the Industrial Revolution. So there were diary entries dating back to medieval times through the 19th century that speak of love for neighbors, cousins, and fellow church members more often than spouses. And in fact, when honeymoons became popular in the 19th century, couples often took along friends and family members for company. Yeah. Like, hey, pack your bags. We're all going because I don't really want to be alone with this person I just married.
1: Yeah. Um, It's understandable if you don't know them.
0: Well, Victorian men even wrote plainly about like bedding down with a male friend and expressing their love for each other. While Victorian women were like, let's kick my husband out of bed because you're a female friend or a relative and I want to like, Spend the night kissing and cuddling you and, like, pouring out my intimate thoughts. Basically, girls were still having slumber parties back then. Oh, yeah. But more fun ones, it sounds
1: like. I imagine.
0: All right. So by the late 1800s, people were, like, openly flaunting their extramarital affairs. Um, Oh, no. I'm sorry. By the late 1800s, people openly flaunting their extramarital affairs was considered scandalous. The opposite of that. Hmm. But, of course...
1: It's still happening.
0: Oh, yeah. Of course it's still happening. So, like, I mean, even if you take into account, like, the last hundred years of presidents, you have Warren Harding's notorious affairs with several women, including a so-called niece. Mm -hmm. Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt had separate mistresses. Dwight Eisenhower had public overseas affairs. Um, John F. Kennedy had multiple women, including, of course... Marilyn Monroe. Get it. Ayo. And um, Lyndon Johnson had a secret lover, And of course, um, you know, Monica Lewinsky. Ayo, Bill Clinton. Uh-huh. Um, Of course, he also had rape victims.
1: Yeah, that's problematic.
0: And then let's not even talk about our current failure in chief. Oh,
1: uh, yeah. We got no problems with the consen- consensual shit. It's the non-consensual shit. You got to yeah, that's a problem.
0: Well, okay, but to be fair, if you are in a relationship and claiming monogamy.
1: Yeah, that's not cool either.
0: I have a problem with even the consensual stuff because it is not consensual between you and your, in theory, monogamous partner. That's true. And yeah. considering that uh, totally. none of these people ever came out as, like, oh, yeah, ethically non monogamous.
1: Yeah, that's true. It's a problem. Yep
0: cheating is still a thing yep even if you choose we'll get there yeah yeah Yeah. i know so 1831 going back joseph smith any ideas who that is
1: nope
0: nathan you do not listen to enough book of mormon soundtrack i keep telling you it's amazing um okay so he began the church of latter-day saints oh yeah yay every day's a ladder okay um
1: (laughs) a latter day
0: uh yeah So (laughs) (laughs) they sanctioned polygamy um, as plural marriage, or you're going to like this one, celestial marriage.
1: Celestial marriage.
0: So the church's practice of polygamy was not recorded until 1843, and it actually remained a secret practice until 1852. And in 1890, there was an attempt um, to gain statehood for Utah, and the church officially denounced polygamy, although the annexation didn't actually happen until 1896. And there's a sect known as the Fundamental Mormonism that continues to practice polygyny in secret, which, of course, the official LDS church doesn't recognize the sect as the Mormon church. Mm-hmm. Um, in the mid-1800s, one of the most famous polyamorous communities came about called the Oneida community in New York. Hmm. And actually, you may remember, I think I told you a little bit about this Oneida community because we were going to do an episode about sex cults. Ah, And then I couldn't find that much information about sex cults, and I was very sad. But I did prepare an entire thing about the United community, which will probably come back up in our quickies, because I have all the research done. Yay. But we're going to talk just a little bit about it now. So it was founded by John Humphrey Noyes, who asserted a doctrine of perfectionism. And this basically claimed that a man reached a state of sinlessness or perfection upon conversion. So in his community, he taught mutual criticism, which is one of the reasons that people pretty much like start to classify this as a cult.
1: Uh-huh. Because- What is, what is mutual criticism?
0: Yeah. Basically like you all sit around and tell each other why you're not perfect. That's <laughs> not great.
1: <laughs> that sounds mean.
0: It, yeah, it's not great. <laughs> but then you also had complex marriage and male continence. And in 1848, he purchased 23 acres of land in Oneida, New York, and his group grew to 87 people. The Oneida community was a self-supporting agricultural and industrial community. They had a working farm and a sawmill, and they grew and canned fruits and vegetables and produced silk thread, and they manufactured animal traps and, like, all sorts of stuff. And they were the primary supplier of animal traps to the Hudson Bay Company. Hmm. And then in 1877, they began the manufacture of silverware, and that's the sole remaining industry today. Okay. They had a communal dwelling house, and they appointed administrative committees and set up a pattern of living, and it lasted for 30 years. And one of the more unique qualities of this community was that the women had equal status to the men in religious and administrative duties and responsibilities like shared in all activities.
1: Hey, they were kind of fair.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a huge split from previous polygamous arrangements where like, women were most often considered the property of men. And now that's not the case. And in fact, there's communal childcare and men and women could both work because of this. Females adopted a style of dress that like consisted of a short skirt over trousers in the 1800s. Wow. And this afforded them so much better like movement and like just, yeah, you start to see this in elevation of women in this community. And then in 1849, there were several smaller branches that arose around New York. And by 1878, there were 306 members total from all the communities combined. However, the breakup started when Noyes began to hand over leadership to his son, who, like, fucked it up. Um, No! Well, he ran the community with, like, a tight fist, and the members were like, nah, fuck that. Um, And Noyes finally came back to lead, but the factions within the community, like from the like bad leadership of his son, it just caused everything to collapse and total fracture. People abandoned the complex marriage thing, and members were too accustomed to complex marriage arrangements and they couldn't settle down to like normal life. And so, in January eighteen eighty one, they reorganized themselves and they created a joint stock company called the Oneida Community Limited, and the Oneida Community was just abandoned. Hmm, just like such a bummer. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I'll have to revisit my Sounded notes. Sounded relatively
1: centers. progressive.
0: Yeah, I mean, I you have to wonder why it came up as like a, a cult and all sorts of stuff, and I'll have well, to revisit sure. my notes, and we'll talk more about that. But yeah, I mean, certainly there were good things going on in this communal living,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's you know that was is the when we talked earlier in the episode about like thinking that it's probably going to go back to something like that. You know, where everything is shared and it, you know, have fun. (laughs) We don't really need to know legitimacy of things. Yeah. Or people, I guess I should say. All right. So one thing I think we all know about the Victorian era is that it was extremely repressive. And of course, when you have a whole bunch of repression, you get mm, a swing the other way where there's a, a massive rise in prostitution and pornography.
1: Freedom! Ew.
0: There were a reported 50,000 sex workers in London and over 300,000 copies of the book Amongst Awful Disclosures sold before the Civil War. So, like. That's a lot. Lots of sexual, you know, like.
1: Deviancy.
0: Oh, uh, yes.
1: <laughs> in a world where people want to break free.
0: Well, something wants to break free. In a
1: world where lots of pants are very
0: tight. Or dresses are.
1: And dresses and ankles are suddenly becoming visible.
0: No, not yet. (laughs) (laughs) No, the dresses are still very cumbersome. (laughs) All right. So industrial revolution um, in America. At this point, families are losing ties with extended relatives and neighbors because they can start moving. Um, And, like, you don't have that close emotional um, relationship husbands and wives are trying to meet like needs for intimacy completely within the context of their marriage society is beginning to reject emotional claims of friends and relatives like seeing them as competition for spouses with regards to time and attention yeah which like that you can see nowadays of like we hear over and over again like you're spending more time with him like now that you have a boyfriend blah, blah, yeah blah, blah. like you know it's a whole thing
1: <laughs> like bro what happened to you you used to hang out with us all the time
0: Right, and that's, like, very much nowadays, like, lauded as, like a, um, like, a, like, a good thing to be, like, giving, you know. It's a whole thing. <laughs> it's it's very confusing world that we live in. Uh-huh.
1: What, what am I supposed to do? Do I spend more time with my friends, or do I actually give time to the partner that I started being with?
0: Yeah. So, okay, so it isn't until the rise of the industrial age that, like, now it becomes acceptable to marry for love. And in fact, like, now love is, like, the only reason it's acceptable to get married. Unless, of course, you have, like, a huge amount of wealth, in which case, you know, we're still doing business transactions. Oh, yeah. But up until this time, like, the idea that marriage should include love was not only thought to be unimportant, but actually strongly advised against, because they would claim that loving someone, like, loving your spouse would be dangerous, and would actually take away from, like, the love and duty that you should have for, like loving God and your extended family. Right. But now we're going to go the complete opposite direction and say like, hey, um... If you, you know, don't love
1: them, you can't marry them.
0: Pretty much. Um, no, don't do it. So the belief that tenderness and excitement of love could coexist with household chores and child rearing brought about the, like, traditional marriage concept that's currently debated and rising divorce rate was actually not a sign of lack of values but rather of consequence that believing a marriage should include love as more and more people, like, refused to settle for loveless marriages or marriage when the love was, like, no longer. Mm -hmm. And the Industrial Revolution made this even more possible because it gave women economic power of their own. Yes! So, like, now there's an ability to, like, leave an unhappy marriage.
1: Have some power, be free, do what you want.
0: So in the 1920s, dating became a thing and like now we can try and select mates and there are a whole bunch of conditions of romantic relationships after the victorian era that are actually really similar to roman times Mm -hmm. and that women now have economic and legal emancipation children are a luxury rather than an asset and sexual enjoyment is seen as a right and like the main difference was that romans moved away from marriage while americans became more marriage-minded
1: entrenched in the idea that It is the only way.
0: Oh, yeah. So, like, that becomes, you know, the sign of success, basically. I
1: would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Mm. I don't know. Babe,
0: you you did do that in October. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. In October, you did that. (laughs) You, You didn't forget that, did you?
1: No, I was talking about something else.
0: I'm sure. I'm sure you are. All right. So 1929, um, Bertrand Russell was this, like, famous philosopher, and he released the book Marriage and Morals. And Russell was, like, this incredibly complex and controversial figure, and, like, of course, his book read as the same. So um, in one chapter, he talks about eugenics, which, like, not great at all. But then on the other hand, he, like, also was known to be incredibly generous and charitable. And in the book, Marriage and Morals, Russell becomes one of the first men to openly oppose rape in marriage. Okay. So that was great. Rest of it, maybe not. That part good. Forget the eugenics. Yeah. Um, so by the way, do you know what year marital rape was like, made illegal in the U.S.?
1: Hmm. Something stupidly late is my guess, and it's going to make me sad when you tell me the year. Um, I don't know, 1980-something?
0: Oh, Nathan. It was a very special year. It was the year that I came into the world. Oh. Please tell me you know what year that was.
1: I know what year you came into the world. You tell everyone.
0: 1993. Ooh. <laughs> Yeah. So but 64 years before that, Russell had written, marriage is for women the commonest mode of livelihood, and the total amount of undesired sex endured by women is probably greater in marriage than in prostitution. Mm. So like someone was halfway forward thinking. Yeah. Um, now of course naturally his views on marital rape not well received. The ones on eugenics, greatly received. Marital rape. <sighs> How so dare backwards. I not
1: be able to rape my wife? No, come on. Really?
0: It was so backwards. Um. All right. So, like, also his thoughts on non-monogamy were not greatly received. Um, because Russell proposed that it was not immoral for people to, like, explore sexually outside or within the bonds of marriage. He believed that, like, the monogamous society must evolve with the times, and he continued to teach and elaborate on this point, like, long after um, his his publications had earned him a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. Um, In 1936, he wrote, the difficulty of arriving at a workable sexual ethic arises from the conflict between the impulse to jealousy and the impulse to polygamy. There's no doubt that jealousy, while in part instinctive, is to a very large degree conventional. In societies in which a man is considered a fit object for ridicule if his wife is unfaithful, he will be jealous where she is concerned, even if he no longer has any affection for her. Thus, jealousy is intimately connected with the sense of property, and jealousy is less where the idea of property is absent. In the meantime, if marriage and paternity are to survive as social institutions, some compromise is necessary between complete promiscuity and lifelong monogamy. Mm-hmm. To decide on the best compromise at any given moment is not easy, and the decision should vary from time to time according to the habits of population and the variety of birth control methods. Yeah. So, like, so many ideas in there.
1: Yeah, that's a lot.
0: First of all, the idea that, like, hey, why are you jealous? Oh, is it because you think you own that other person? Knock it off.
1: Yeah, stop that.
0: That is my uh, summary of what he said about (laughs) jealousy. (laughs) Um, And then also this idea of like, hey, you know, you can like revisit your monogamy and you can have all sorts of like different moments in time where like your agreements look different and that can change and that should change. Yeah. Like, let's all talk about it. And I also just like, Love the reliability of like birth control methods being a thing.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. So, um, have control over when you have kids and who you have them with, but have fun.
0: Ayo. So, like, despite these efforts, Russell was eventually deemed too immoral to teach in schools and universities. Too amoral? Too immoral.
1: Oh, immoral. Okay.
0: Yeah. They were like, hey, we don't really want you around kids. <laughs> Um, but he did, of course, continue to travel and speak. Um, by the way, over in China, um, they allowed polygamous mismarriages until the Marriage Act of 1953 after the Communist Revolution. Jeez. Um, okay.
1: They really had things going.
0: You know, up until the Communist Revolution.
1: <laughs> yeah, well. Killing them
0: all. Um, over in the 1950s, um, over in the, ni- in the 1950s, <laughs> We saw this, um, social concept, like, reach its height in which women were expected to find total fulfillment in their marriage and motherhood only. Which, like, doesn't sound great to me. No, that doesn't sound very fun at all. I mean, like, I know I'm learning to cook a lot more lately, but, like, I, love I really... I so much. Thank you. I really don't want to only do that. <laughs> like, and I'm very happy to be the mother of a cat. That's about it. <laughs> all right. Um... Okay, so we have in the 1950s, you know, that apple pie, big skirt idea of like what women should aspire and be happy with. Um, but then in the 1960s, we have the war. Woo!
1: Why are we wooing?
0: Well, you see, women now have to leave the home and they're rediscovering the joys of like social contacts and friendships outside their husbands. Yeah. And there's like now a really deep schism in American society that develops for like those who maintain that their spouse should be able to fill like all emotional and physical needs and other people who are like hey humans are social and sexual beings and like one person can't possibly fulfill every need of, of a one person <laughs> yeah so like women are getting back out they're like learning who they are again they're like de- like re-establishing economic independence and also going like i don't really need just him like he was overseas and couldn't do anything for me while he was there. And like, I don't know. I have this friend, Jim. He was Uh, fun. uh, 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 Um, And of course, this isn't even just like the idea of like getting out and having sex. This is also the idea of like having friends and having intimate connections. Right. Like in a way that is very fulfilling because people don't just need one conversation their whole lives they need different conversations and they need different connections and so it wasn't even just about like sexually filling different needs but also like socially <laughs> mm. all right so let's talk about non-monogamy polyamory and of course the queer community.
1: yay
0: all right, so mainstream society is grappling with this concept of like sexual commitment and minority and oppressed groups are like already beginning to reopen this discussion surrounding monogamy. Mm-hmm. Because like if you realize that your orientation and your gender identity doesn't fit the norm, yeah, um, then you're like, might as well just throw out every other rule about sexuality.
1: Right, yeah. Like
0: because if, I'm not falling into the category you've told me I've fallen into, then why am I going to believe anything else you told me?
1: Right. Why should I follow any of your rules?
0: So for like many decades, the queer community was out there like practicing non-monogamy. Yeah. And part of this was like leniency of sexual standards. Mm-hmm. And like partly because options of living monogamously in other respects were like unattainable. Right. You know, if you if you can't get married and married is like the monogamous ideal... Right. Well then,
1: if you can't win, hey, the, I don't care. If you can't win the game, play a different game.
0: Yeah, I mean, why not? Um, also,
1: you lose the game.
0: Yeah. So I mean, and on top of that, like queer couples, they can't be in for centuries and up until very recently. Queer couples couldn't be married or monogamous because they can't get married. They can't be socially monogamous because we don't let them, right? And they can't be genetically monogamous because. Biology is a thing. Right. Um, you know. So like sexual monogamy just gets thrown out the window too. Yeah, what's the point? So, it, you know, but the, there are also like new laws and social prejudice at, that are against like multi-partner relationships. And people, despite this, were continuing to engage in polycentric romances throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Mm-hmm. Of course, they had to do this underground, mostly due to like same-sex and queer individual Pair-ups rather than the fact that, like, multiple people were in love. And anti and sexual deviancy laws played a very strong part in keeping poly couples private. Right. Because, like, otherwise not good things can happen to you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, now, in the 1940s and 50s, there's, like, a boom in sexual research that's spurred by Alfred Kinsey and, um, you know, like Masters and johnson come along. And, like, so now we're learning all sorts of things sexually and scientifically about like different ways of being than the norm that has gone on for many years. All right so 1961 Robert Heinlein writes a book called Stranger in a Strange Land and this emphasizes sexual relationships and uses terms such as line marriage and nesting Hmm. and it's arguably the most reference work of fiction depicting plural partnerships. Okay. And he wrote several other books that dealt with this topic, including Time Enough for Love. So now we go over to
1: 1969.
0: <laughs> nice. Yeah. John and Barbara Williamson opened what's called the Sandstone Retreat. Okay. And this lasted until 1976. Um, this was a nudist spa type of retreat. And it's like a sm- basically a small group of nudists like, slash swingers lived year-round here. Um, in like a communal sort of intentional community, very Oneida style. Okay. Um, and on weekends, adults over 18 were also allowed to join as members. And they could enjoy leisure and health-sponsored activities, full nudity indoors and outdoors, large buffet-style dinners, and then also up in the upstairs ballroom, members could, if they wanted, engage in swinging and group sex. Okay. So John and Barbara believed in personal growth through relationships and openness and honesty as the cornerstone to um, healthy relationships and healthy individuals. And they encouraged communal living and do-it-yourself therapy sessions to remove jealousy and possession from relationships. Okay. Basically, they're trying to like-
1: Remove the stigma.
0: Yeah, they're trying to get people to unlearn everything they've been taught. Yep. This was very egalitarian, and they believed that women should be equal contributors to the relationship and to society even if that meant that women would take on traditionally male roles, if that's what made her happy. Right. And they also believed that their views of love, respect, and lack of privacy would transform the world. Their work centered around getting existing married couples to open their relationship to sexual and intimate encounters with other people. They wanted to eradicate jealousy and to grow emotionally as individuals. And in 1970, the Los Angeles Public Welfare Commission denied the Sandstone Retreat a growth center license, which, of course, prompted a lengthy and expensive court battle, forcing the Williamsons to sell the club. What a bummer. God, the legal system sucks. Just takes everything good away from us. Yep. So now... An appeals court like eventually overturns this decision and like Sandstone was able to reopen in 1974, but now it was under the management of Paul Page, who is a former U.S. Marine and marriage counselor. And he like shared the Williamson's idealistic views, but he was more pragmatic about money and he started instituting annual dues of $740.
1: That was in the 1970s. That's a lot of money.
0: That is a lot of money in the 1970s.
1: I mean, that's a lot of money now, but. That's a lot of money in the 1970s.
0: Any guesses about what the conversion is?
1: Isn't it, what, is to like 1300 or no? I don't know. What is it?
0: I have no idea. I didn't look it up. I was just curious what you would say.
1: <laughs> uh, well, something like $2,000 or, or more.
0: More than we have. Yeah. Um, so the story of the sandstone retreat actually gets later, like mentioned in several books and articles about the sexual revolution. So it was included in like Esquire and Playboy and Penthouse, the Los Angeles Times. Um, there's what's known as the sandstone experience by Tom Hatfield. Um, Gay Talese, um, wrote thy neighbor's wife. Um, we magazine featured it and Barbara Williamson even appeared on the Dick Cavett show. So then in 1971 to 1991, you get the creation of the Charistic Commune. And this is an intentional community centered in San Francisco, California that was essentially started by Brother Judd Pressmont. And what you might be seeing now is that, like, along with polyamorous movements, you get this communal living style, right? They just go hand in hand. Um, And they were made up of, like, several smaller family clusters between, like, four and 15 people. And each of those were, like, sexually, like, faithful to each other. Mm-hmm. So like you have these like smaller groups and it's like, okay, so within this four person or like 10 person group, we're all going to be, you know, we're going to have fidelity with each other. But then like we get to do whatever we want in there and like, yeah. I'm sure they had rules and whatever. Yeah. Okay. Um, so then there's a work optional lifestyle and shared income. And they also had a free newspaper and several magazines that discuss their philosophies and they became the um, one of the biggest Apple computer resellers when the computer industry was revolutionized by IBM competitors. Okay? So at its height, Carista had thirty three members in several locations, and the group eventually broke up when their unofficial leader, Judd, left the group and couldn't maintain itself without like the leadership of Judd. So one of the contributing factors um, that was given by another founding member was that the sense of communism within the group lacked a um, it created a lack of like personal motivation and individuality. Um, And this eventually caused disgust in several members because living spaces were rarely kept clean and the household finances were, like, just abysmal. Mm. And then in the 1970s, Gio of the Carista Commune created the word polyfidelity, which means faithful to many. And it's generally reserved for a sexually fidelist group of, like, um, marriage of, like, co-equals. So, Mm. like, all bonded to each other. Okay. All right. 1979. Richard Alexander introduced an influential distinction between two kinds of monogamy in human societies. So you actually start to get um, more scholarly discussions of this. Okay. So he basically was like trying to understand like the causes of variation in terms of non-monogamy. So he argued that there's ecologically imposed monogamy or EIM and then there's also socially imposed monogamy or SIM. Okay. So in EIM, monogamy is, like, universal or prevalent because, like, individual men are typically unable to gain by attempting to provide for offspring of more than one wife. Hmm. So, like he said, like EIM emerges when relative costs and benefits of mating effort and parental care make monotony the optimal outcome for individuals. Okay, yeah. And it refers to an actual condition in the mating system. So an equilibrium between countervailing pressures to spend energy on mating and to invest energy in child rearing. This basically allows for like human mating strategies um, that are complex and pluralist. But he said under most conditions, a mildly polygynous mating system seems to emerge in human societies. Right. So then in socially imposed monogamy, this is a distinction because it's said to be unique to humans. It's a cultural phenomenon. Okay, Right? It refers to a marriage system. Its existence is determined by the rules that prevail in a society, not necessarily the realities of mating. Right. So it's like the crucial feature of this is that it imposes normative monogamy regardless of the fitness of costs and benefits for individual actors. So essentially, here's the difference, right? EIM develops when the um, factors of the environment make sense for you to not sleep with a bunch of people. Right. SIM develops in America where we tell you that you can't, Sleep with a bunch of people.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) This is America.
0: Right. And, you know, of course, there are other Western cultures as well who, you know, purport monogamy to be ideal and everything. But it's really just this idea that, like, what we see in humans is unique because we have the ability to, like, force cultural norms on each other.
1: Right. So, So EIM is, like, you only having one partner because COVID-19 is forcing you to stay at home with only that one partner, and S-I-M is the law.
0: Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, basically. And and it's, you know, the idea that, like, uh, this is reinforced over and over again and the fact that our media, like, shows us, like, you're you're supposed to, like, be with one person or you're supposed to be jealous when, when you know, that person, like, you know, flirts with someone else. And, like, yeah. there's just so much reinforcement of the idea that, like, being coupled is ideal, including the idea that, like, you get a tax break from getting married and, like, having one partner. Right. And, like, you know, there's so many systems that are put in place that say, like, hey, get coupled, get married.
1: It's better this for you. This is what you. you're supposed yeah. to do.
0: Yeah. And and we have actually developed systems that make it seem like EIM, when really it's SIM. Yep. Good job, team.
1: <laughs> hey, cool.
0: All right, so there's a kind of a, a very interesting um, historical, ecological look at uh, monogamy and non monogamy. All right, 1984. There's a oh, newsletter. It feels
1: like we're living in 1984. Sorry, Orwell.
0: Hey, I read that book. It was actually creepy, but good. <laughs> um, okay, so there's a newsletter called Loving More. Um, it later becomes a magazine, and it, this starts using the terms polyfidelity, open relationships, and intimate networks. Mm-hmm. And in 1985, the polyfidelity primer was published by Loving Lovingmore.
1: Mm.
0: Um, followed by the sexual revolution of the 60s and the queer liberation fight of the 70s and 80s, you might think polycouples were safe to start coming out of hiding, but actually, now they get a new foe the gay and lesbian movement what yeah
1: but why though
0: so there's an effort um to prove that like they're quote-unquote normal right like basically the lgb at the time really just lg community were like hey we want to be accepted so how do we do that oh, that's right, we tell everyone that we're white and middle class and, like, traditional, just like you guys, straight people. Mm -hmm. So, like, um, you have a whole movement that pushes out transgender folks, gender nonconforming people, queer people of color, leather-slash-BDM groups, polysexual people, all of these voices are silenced and ignored in the white, middle-class, gay, lesbian movement to be accepted by the
1: hetero people. Right. Wow.
0: So like fear and prejudice are just sweeping gay and lesbian alliances and they're worrying that the movement would be seen as too radical if others had a voice oh no oh yeah so I mean yeah you're just having this idea of people like saying like hey you know we're just like you like we also want to get married and settle down and like you know have kids and whatever and develop like these like ideal you know family units but then of course that's two people and so now you can't have the fun poly and non-monogamy thing so it's like just a really, really tragic side effect of what happened, and this is why, like, especially this past June, you saw a lot of people campaigning to like center um, queer people of color
1: mm-hmm. because right.
0: people are starting to recognize and and remember how silenced they were
1: right yeah. during
0: these times.
1: That sucks.
0: Yeah, and so like people are really trying to give a voice to that and recognize, like, wow, we did wrong. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so most of the 19th century, non-monogamy is seen as a perverse form of sexual deviancy, all the while individuals like continue to break rules within their relationships. They have illicit and extramarital affairs, cheating, hiding, lying, covering up non-monogamous ways. And then we get a breakthrough in the form of a new term and a new form of lifestyle introduced in 1990. This is when we actually finally get the term polyamory.
1: Oh wow, that's so it's a relatively young word.
0: It is a really, really young. It's like only three years older than I am. Mm. And um, by the way, it was coined by a witch. Yay! A witch. A witch. A witch. You're a witch. You're the witch. <laughs> You're a witch. All right. So this You're witch is supposed to say the thing. Witch, witch. Oh, I'm not a witch. I'm your wife. <laughs> <laughs> all right so there's a witch named morning glory zell Ravenheart, which is like
1: that's a cool name
0: that's a cool and confusing name yes um Ravenheart was born in 1948 and given the name diane moore which of course was a very fitting christian name for the baby of like strict pentecostal parents um but then she like turned 17 and she read diary of a witch by Sybil Leek and she was like now nah, fuck this, um, and she changed her name and joined a local commune in Oregon. Okay. She began to study the dark arts and soon entered an open and pagan marriage to a hitchhiker that she met. Glad that worked out. Don't cool. hitchhike. Um, but the married and marriage ended in divorce a few years later when Morning Glory fell in love with a wizard named Tim Zell. Uh. <laughs> He's a wizard. <laughs> The two, um, they, maintain, they maintain an open and multi-partnered relationship.
1: You're a hairy wizard.
0: Ew. <laughs> um, usually, they had about five to six lovers bonded together. And after um, the Glory Zell reun- um, union, Morning Glory took over editorship of the group's neo-pagan journal, Green Egg, around 1969. Um, nice. She would often, like, oversee the journal on and off for, like, the next, like, 32 years. And it was through this magazine that the editor introduced the concept of polyamory to the world in an article titled Bouquet of Lovers. Ooh. Yeah, I like that. Um, so the article shot the magazine back into the public eye after it had been fairly dormant for like over a decade okay. because it had new terminology and the internet was like budding and people were like able to come out as polyamorous yeah, and the movement just saw this big breakthrough.
1: Yay. The internet has done a lot of good things.
0: Yay. So one of the first online groups was established by Jennifer, Jennifer West in 1982, um, under the Usenet forum, alt, um, atl.polyamory. And further evidence came in the form of the popular book, The Ethical Slut, published in 1997 and written by Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy, which I had to read for class. Yeah. Um, However, we see like prejudice of the time um, as the authors felt safer using a pseudonym. Which is why the first edition bears the name Catherine A. Litz on the cover. Mm -hmm. And the book discussed polyamory as more than the mere act of sleeping with multiple partners. It presented a moral and ethical lifestyle to the general public. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's like, hey, let's all be sluts. Yeah. Let's just, let's reclaim this term and let's all do it. Yeah. Very slut like you, my pink. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. (laughs) So Nathan what exactly is polyamory any guesses
1: oh you're asking me
0: i'm i'm asking you
1: as i understand it it's a i mean it's a consensual group of people that love each other
0: oh so basically it's the fact of having simultaneous close romantic relationships with two or more um other individuals yeah that And it's viewed as an alternative to monogamy, especially in regards to matters of sexual fidelity, the custom or practice of engaging in multiple romantic relationships with the knowledge and consent of all partners concerned. Yep. So in 1999, the Oxford English Dictionary contacted Morning Glory and requested an official definition for the word polyamory, and she took the opportunity to explain that polyamory is meant to mean all forms of multiple loving relationships, but is not meant to include multiple purely sexual relationships like swinging and casual sex. Mm -hmm. We're left out, sorry.
1: That's fine. (laughs) That's totally okay. Having a distinction is important.
0: You get to be whatever you want to be. Yep. Um, so today, the definition has simplified to read the practice of engaging in multiple sexual relationships with the agreement of all the people involved. So in 1990, Deborah and Apple uses the phrases non-monogamy and intimate networks. She was also one of the first author- authors to use the term polyamory in print a couple years later. In 1982, she published the book Love Without Limits, The Quest for Sustainable Intimate Relationships, Responsible Non-Monogamy. Mm. which again used bouquet of lovers and morning glory's term polyamorous. In 1997, she published the new edition Polyamory: The New Love Without Limits, Secrets of Sustainable Intimate Relationships. The book The Ethical Slut was released um and like again like we said this is talking about not specifically polyamorous but then like how to be ethically honestly like responsible and manage multiple sexual relationships. Mm-hmm. We're back in. Cool. <laughs> All right, modern polyamory. So the concept of polyamory is like a lifestyle. It's created by and for Western culture because we have a heavy emphasis and restrictions of a monogamous mm-hmm. society. And polysexual people have like worked to create an ethical and safe culture to express their multi-love desires. So like, uh, in other words, in other places around the world, you don't need this separate environment. <laughs> because people are fluid in social and genetic and marital sexual experiences. But here, we are forced to define the lifestyle of poly people.
1: Good job, USA. Woo! Good job. And that was sarcasm in case you couldn't tell.
0: So the most commonly quoted ethics in polyamory are fidelity and loyalty, uh-huh. communication and negotiation, okay. honesty and trust, yep. dignity and respect, cool, and non-possessiveness. Okay. So poly individuals understand that jealousy is a part of every relationship and they work to combat that. And one term that's actually used in the polyamorous world is compersion. Any guesses? No. So compersion is um, basically a term that means like you're expressing joy at a partner's joy in another relationship. Mm. It's like I'm happy, you're happy. <laughs> um, every group of individuals may have their own terminology, um, but some of their commonly used terms are like triad or quad
1: Mm -hmm.
0: which refers to
1: three or four people
0: nailed it um how the individuals like date each other are going to vary from group to group so in some triads and quads everyone dates each other in others the couplings may be more defined um and some individuals will date everyone in the group but they'll only fluid bond with specific people okay any guesses
1: nope
0: no guesses about what fluid bonding is oh that's sex Specifically, what kind of sex?
1: Intercourse? I have no idea.
0: Non-protected sex. Ah. Right? So that's the idea that, like, throw out the condoms. Got it. And a lot of, like, um, in a lot of relationships, you'll have kind of um, boundaries around fluid bonding. And also, um, you know, like, that can be seen as, like, a sign of of intimacy to go from being non-fluid bonded to being fluid bonded. There's all sorts of stuff around that. Um, and somehow, I just never it,
1: heard that term before.
0: Yeah, um, most people haven't, and it's a. I think it's like a great description of what's going on, especially yeah. in a world where we do have to, you know, concern ourselves with like pregnancy and and STIs and things like that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Make. I mean, it's a. It makes it easier than the long description of yeah, we're not going to use a condom.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, you know, I, I think it's really important to be like using terms that are inclusive because fluid bonding you know that can be any kind of structure of people within the relationship Mm -hmm. like it doesn't you know doesn't matter gender and and stuff like that you know it's very inclusive in terms of of as far as terms go
1: see guys i'm still learning stuff
0: All right. So some poly people use a hierarchical method for their lovers, while other individuals may not. Uh Um, Those who use hierarchical levels rate their relationships in order of importance. So like, for instance, a married couple would usually place like their spouse as their primary partner. Sure. And then each individual is going to choose a secondary or sometimes even like a tertiary partner. Right. Um, Usually the term is simply used to establish boundaries and guidelines for other lovers. Yeah. Um, Another term used by both hierarchical and non-hierarchical quads and triads is like nesting partner. Okay. So this specifically refers to couples who live together. Okay. And while that fact like may not establish a level of importance, it does exhibit a level of entanglement that like everyone needs to be aware of. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and you also have things like kitchen table polyamory, which is like, does everybody know each other? Can you all sit around the like kitchen table and talk about the relationships and everything like that? Mm. Um, and then also you start you've started seeing this use of like anchor partner, which a lot of people like to use instead of like primary because okay. that can. That term, like primary, can be very hierarchical. Sure. Um, so, anchor partner is kind of similar to nesting partner, of like, this is, you know, the, the person that I consider who quote unquote anchors me, right? Mm-hmm. That's the person that I am going to go to and, and turn to, and like, um, who I, a lot of the times, it's like, this is a person that I kind of consider myself relying on for emotional support and stuff. Yeah. Um, So over the last 20 years, there's been an explosion of information and exposure to polyamorous communities. Um, So since the publication in 1997, The Ethical Slut has published three different editions, several hundred thousand copies. It's been adapted into the play Multiple O's. Um, There have been books like More Than Two and Opening Up. Um, And like television series and movies have been featuring polyamorous people, including Professor Martson and the Wonder Woman, which is the true story of the creator of Wonder Woman.
1: Oh, okay. That is
0: on Hulu right now, so we will go check that out. Yeah. Um, as you can imagine, there's of course been pushback. Um, in the fight for marriage equality, one of the most common arguments used by opponents was that same-sex marriage would open the door for polyamorous couples.
1: Okay, Fuck what's you. the problem?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, sadly, the queer community often denounced poly practices. Um, that often is still an issue that goes on today. Um, and <sighs> as a respo- response, many poly people have actually been pushing to have polyamorous defined as an orientation. So like polysexual is a yeah. term that's been coming up a lot. Okay. Um, but even like well-known gay activists like Dan Savage have declared polyamory isn't something you are, it's something you do. Um, and then of course that's just once again reducing polyamory to nothing more than sex. Of course. Which like of course if it's like consensual non-monogamy or monogamish like that's fine. If that's how you want to do it. Right. But polyamory is a different
1: is thing. Is not
0: nece- like that's not necessarily about that like it, it is about multiple intimate relationships, romantic relationships, yeah. not just about sex like and you can do it in any way shape or form that you want as long as everyone's on the same page and okay with it
1: right if someone's not okay with it then don't do it or figure out what you can do
0: yeah and and you know the big thing is of course yeah the big thing is of course like that um the idea that like people should be communicating and not only should you be communicating with whatever partners you have but also with yourself and like Constantly checking in with yourself of like, oh, am I jealous? Why am I jealous? Is this a function of something I need? Is this a function of like what I've been taught? Am I tr- like basically viewing this person as my property in some way, shape, or form? Like, why am I doing that? Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about just kind of reflection and communication and you know figuring out what is going to be the best system for you. Yay. and that may be monogamy, right? But the question is, did you actually have a conversation about it? <laughs> Did you decide together that this is what you want yeah it's the whole thing okay so um by the way as of 2006 indian marriage laws um are dependent upon the religion of the people involved so hindu marriage laws specifically prohibit polygamy for hindu jains and sikhs and Um, however muslims in india are allowed to have multiple wives um in 2016 vice media reported that Many obstacles poly people face in America and around the world. um, so they like talked about how, in like Connecticut, there are outdated zoning laws which restrict the number of unmarried adults who can live together. yeah, which do you remember why those started existing?
1: uh, yeah, wasn't it? It was because of um brothels
0: sex work, yeah, um, of course, now it's coming back to bite polyamorous people, <laughs> yeah <laughs> boo. Um, in both Alabama and Florida, there are still laws in place which criminalize adultery, which make it dangerous for polyamorous married couple to engage um, with their quadr triad. And in Australia, there was even a social worker who was fired simply because she listed herself as poly as a poly friendly therapist. Um, and of course, this like doesn't touch on like social prejudice and discrimination that polysexual people face on a day to day basis. Seriously. Um, and this is part of why it's so important to work on adding it as an orientation because like we just saw a couple days ago, there are still laws being passed to protect people of any orientation
1: or, or new rulings being come coming down to protect people.
0: Yeah so now you're having protections out there for like um, the LGBT community and hopefully we will, allow polysexual people to be included in that so people can be open about the relationships that they're in without fear of being fired or, you know, any of the other number of repercussions that come about from holding a different sexual orientation. Yeah. So it's really important for people to be educating themselves and to be fighting for the rights of poly people. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously, I will be going on to list myself as a poly-friendly therapist, and hopefully I don't get fired. Yeah. Um, and it's just so important for any, like, therapist out there who um, are poly-friendly to be, like, putting their voice in behind this. If you're not poly-friendly, to be, like, getting that education, um... It's also important for like sex educators to start talking about this and legitimizing it from a young age because this is all about unlearning all the messages that we have, which are gonna promote jealousy and monogamy and, you know, just this lifestyle that leads to a lot of issues. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> because y- people it's... are still lying and cheating and not being faithful when they say they'll be faithful. And it's yeah. a problem because also one of the big um, arguments against non-monogamy is like STIs and it's like well actually if you talk about it and you have boundaries and you like you know be who you're fluid bonding with then you're actually more likely to
1: not not have get
0: STIs if
1: you're not talking about it it's much easier to go and get in trouble with it yeah because I mean, if you like
0: cheated and you don't want to tell your partner because you're supposed to be monogamous well you like you're much more likely to bring STIs home so like stop spreading
1: lies yeah I mean y'all m- m- monogamy is okay but so is non-monogamy
0: so there you go nathan that is the fun and fascinating tale into monogamy and hopefully back out of it um and we're on a, our way as we said a topic that is near and dear to both of our hearts as uh, ethically non-monogamous people
1: yay well uh Thank you all for listening. We hope you learned something. I know I certainly did. Uh, make sure you check out our website at www.safesexpodcast.com and find us on social media at facebook.com rexedpod or on Twitter at safesexpodcast.
0: If you have feedback for us or you want to suggest an episode topic, our email is rexed at safesexpodcast.com.
1: You can also send us a message on our Facebook page with that suggestion if you really want to. Uh, if you enjoyed the show and you'd like to join our Rex Ed fan base as a donor, you can visit us at patreon.com slash podcast.
0: And we say it every week, but don't forget you actually have to search that specifically because we are considered a mature topic. Gosh, I wonder why.
1: Or click the link on our website. We have it there, too. Um
0: you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, leave us a review.
1: And if you didn't like it, that's okay. You can just keep that to yourself and your one and only partner.
0: Special thanks for this episode goes to my professor, Dr. Castaldo, because she's letting this count as my final. Ew.
1: And of course, we'd like to thank Kesko for use of their song play for your people. And remember,
0: whether there are multiple people in your bed or just you,
1: be a T-Rex in the streets,
0: but safe in the sheets my ridiculousness beforehand and that should be like the intro